We are going to be in Ephesians 4 in just a minute, but before we get there, uh, something else that I'd, I'd like to begin with that has to do with Tuesday. You know, Tuesday is a big day, right? Um, you all know what's happening on Tuesday, a big election. I'm going to take just a, a couple of minutes uh, this morning. I want to begin by reminding us as a church that we need to be praying uh, about the upcoming election. A uh, lot of things that will be happening uh, in our country, in our state, different states. A lot of decisions being made. We want to pray for God's will to be done. We want to pray for peace as well across the nation. And uh, I will be in Ephesians 4 in a minute. As Stephanie said, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 and thinking about, uh, about spiritual growth. But um, I really believe that, that taking a little time to think about Tuesday is important for us. And so I know some would say, well, that seems like dangerous territory, but, but I don't really see it that way. Um, I have a responsibility as a pastor of this church to, to communicate to the church family about matters of importance. In this last summer, we took uh, several weeks in the middle of the summer to talk through uh, some of those things. Uh, when we see chaos, when we see confusion happening in the world around us, or at times even conflict, to be able to look at it through a biblical lens and say, what, what does the Word of God say about some of the things that we are seeing? And so that, that's not a wrong thing for a pastor or a church to, to do. That's, that's the calling. It's the calling to look to God's Word. And so don't misunderstand. It's not my job to promote candidates. I never have done that. And, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that's not how I use that. And as Brad said, I somehow joined Facebook earlier this year, and no, I don't use it for that, that purpose either. So, you know, it just, it's just not, not, not who I am. So I'm not telling people uh, how to vote. I'm not endorsing candidates. But as a pastor, I do have to speak to issues that, 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 that the Bible speaks to. And some of these matters that are before us are matters of ethics and morality, and so I want to be very clear uh, on how, how I view these things. Uh, some, some may disagree with me, and that's okay. Uh, but I, I still feel as if it's important that I speak into some of these uh, matters. I'll do so quickly because I've got a whole sermon on Ephesians 4 to preach. But, uh, but I do want to uh, touch base on a couple things. The first is that I've read an article or two in recent weeks that have been very disturbing to me. Um, and one of the articles was written by a man that I have respected for years, decades. Heard him speak, heard him preach. He preached at my seminary. Um, I've met him in person. I've talked to him about the, the ministry that our family was a part of in Athens. Uh, Pastor John Piper, in fact, I quoted him this last Sunday, right? Remember the, the quote about worship? So I have a lot of respect for him. But he wrote an article this week, that, that uh, two weeks ago, that I that I just have issue with, and it's called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. And his article was critical of those running for president, and he explained his reasoning to not vote for either presidential candidate because of the character flaws of each. He mentioned abortion policy for one and arrogance and pride for the other. And he said that, that not everyone, I want to be fair, he said not everyone should feel that they have to follow his example. But he wrote the article. And people read it, and it's been disseminated. So articles are meant to influence the way we think. And so as I read that and processed it, read it a couple of times, um, I, I feel like I've got to speak to it. Um, again, um, if we follow his example, just think about it this way. If every believer did what he is proposing that he's going to do for himself, what would that mean? Would the body of Christ be represented at all on election day? 
Do, do, do we want only unbelievers then to, to make the decisions on election day? Because, because I have a problem with that, with that perspective. I don't, I don't hold that view of Christian citizenship. I think that, that we as believers, uh, we, we have responsibility. And our primary responsibility is to bring the gospel into the community and into the world. But when issues of ethics and morality are being discussed in the public square... I think we should be present. We should be represented. We should have a voice. It should be thoughtful and informed. And above anything else, it should be biblical because the Bible speaks to issues of ethics and morality. And so I took some time this summer uh, to speak on some of them, and I'm going to bring a few others up here uh, right now um, before we jump into the message. Some people told me today that I had two messages, and I'll let, I'll let you decide if that really is what's happening here or not. I don't know. Um, but after that article was written, there were some other people, like Dr. Wayne Grudem, author of Systematic Theology, who wrote another article in response to Piper's to say, I don't agree with your take. Uh, I don't agree with the, the way you've interpreted some of the passages. Um, a friend of mine, Dr. Mark Devine, who's a theology professor at Beeson Divinity School, he was first my professor in seminary, but then we served together on a a church staff for, for a time as well, he wrote an article, same thing, saying, okay, we all love and we respect this man, and we, we, uh, we, that, that has not changed, but we differ in the way that he has presented his uh, perspectives on this. So I will say that I do believe we have a responsibility not only to vote, but we need to vote with an informed vote. We need to understand the issues. And I know at times the chaos and the, and the conflict could lead some of us just to say, I don't want anything to do with it. I'll just, I'll just go the other direction. I'll bury my head, whatever. But these are vital issues. And they're matters that for Bible-believing followers of Christ, we should have an understanding of, and they should be important to us. Um, now, I know there's a lot of different voter guides out there. In fact, I've, I've read a number of them. I just wanted to see how they're put together. Uh, our Missouri Baptist Convention put one out. It's on their website, Missouri Baptist Pathway. Uh, American Family Association put, put one out. Um, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch put one out. I read theirs too. I read, read through it this last week. Just again, to, to see what the perspectives are, to inform myself as a voter. And I will tell you that there are a number of issues and matters that we can't say are just political. A number of them are moral and ethical matters, matters of principle that, uh, that we have to understand. And so uh, some of the obvious ones would be things like the sanctity of marriage and family. Uh, we looked at that in the month of, of June. Do, does the Bible speak to, to uh, uh, the definition of family? Do we, do we look all the way back to the book of Genesis and see that the, that the fabric of, of, of society was birthed through uh, through the marriage. And so, yes, if, if people are, are, are issuing new ways of, of, of defining marriage as Bible-believing followers of Christ, we need to know what, what it is that the Bible says to be able to, to, uh, to engage in that dialogue at the public square. The sanctity of human life. These are, this is a critically important matter. I, I, I have, have said a lot about about the sanctity of, of, of human life, unborn life through the years. And, you know, one of the ways that's, that's easy for me to understand it is to say that, that, that when someone is expecting a baby, you have two heartbeats. If someone chooses abortion, there's one heartbeat. 
You tell me what that is when we, when we see the loss of human life. So is that just a political issue? I don't think that it is. We have to understand it from what God's word would say. We could go on and talk about other things. Does, can, can someone's economic policy be shaped by a biblical worldview? Absolutely. The way you handle your personal finances can be shaped by a biblical perspective of what the Bible teaches about money, how we budget, how we care for others, how we're able to, to be in a situation to give and provide for those in need. These have implications from the, the personal level all the way to the national level. We could talk about how one views authority. I spent some time in June looking at Romans 13. How do we view people that are set aside to protect those that have authority, such as police officers and military and others, there are different ways of viewing these things. Well, what does the Bible teach us about this? You can look again and see Romans 13 speaking of servants of God and uh, other, other passages. Let me give you one more issue, one more matter that hits very close to home for me and for us, and that's the matter of religious liberty. And as soon as I say those words, some people say, well, isn't religious liberty just that, that we're able to assemble and worship uh, uh, together? And, and I would say it doesn't stop there. That's, that's only one facet of religious liberty. Uh, religious liberty also includes uh, provisions and protections for us to be able to live our lives based upon religious convictions that we hold. And, and that, that has tremendous implications to the church and to Living Water Academy and the Missouri Baptist Children's Home because there are policies out there that threaten the freedom of religion in these contexts. Let me explain. Maybe part of your research this week could be to read about the Equality Act. And we would all agree when we hear these words, the Equality Act, that every American should be treated equally. But when it comes to a hiring practice for a private institution like a church, I would contend that, that we should be able to hire people that agree with our statement of faith. In fact, we are in the process of, of, of interviewing deacons and elders and potentially ordaining some of them. And you know what we do even with volunteers and local you know, lay leaders in the church? We ask them to read our statement of faith. Tell us that they agree with it or if they don't, where they disagree so that we can see if we're like-minded. And so you expect that. That's a stewardship of trust that, that you place within the leaders of the body to do that type of, 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 of work when we, when, we, uh, when we look at calling people into leadership roles. Well, think about that as a church staff member. Say we have an opening and we begin to, to advertise that we have a, uh, an opening. Does it make sense that based upon religious liberty that, that, that we, we should be able to bring people into the fold here to lead and to serve who have like-minded beliefs? What do you think? Does that seem like that's non-negotiable? Well, what about Living Water Academy? You know, we have well, this next school year, maybe we have some, some openings, teachers and staff positions. Should we be able to, to bring people into the fold to teach and to lead who are like-minded? What do you think, church? It just seems, it seems appropriate. Now, you're wondering why I'm talking about all this. Let me, let me just mention, there is a quote that I'm going to give you from a supporter of the Equality Act that says this, religion should not be used as a license to discriminate. So, listen to that word. 
all of a sudden, we want to hire someone to teach children in a Christian school, or uh, we want to to look at our Missouri Baptist Children's Home that works with foster care and adoption, and we have, we have Christian principles that we want to, to, to run this private group by, and all of a sudden we're told you can't use religion to discriminate. That's a game changer. That's a game changer for churches, Christian schools, Christian foster and adoption agencies, all because the language is changing. And so, yes, we can bury our head in the sand, or we could just say, that we're going to take a higher road and we're just going to ignore some of these things. I, I don't think that is a higher road. Because I think, I think what's happening at the public square right now is that decisions are being made which affect the current status and the future of our nation from, from an ethical and moral perspective that has so many implications. And so my encouragement to you is to be an informed voter. Here's what Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, said about this Equality Act. He said, now just understand what's at stake here. It means no more Christian adoption agencies that are free to operate as Christian. No more foster care agencies that are free to operate as Christian. It means furthermore, given the way it is written, no more Christian schools or no more Christian ministries that unless they are covered by some Supreme Court protection will not come under the same kind of legislation. So, some of these issues, maybe today you have viewed just simply as political issues. I urge you, I urge you, think of them through the framework that God has given us in his word. And let that be part of what informs you. Have I told anybody who to vote for? Or what? I'm, that's not my job. But as your pastor, I want to share with you that there are some areas out there that we have got to be informed on. And so uh, that's my encouragement to you is to be informed, to be an informed voter, but I also want to encourage us to pray. Um, let me say that, that the pendulum can swing both ways. We can, we, can, we can swing the pendulum on the side where we're just very inactive and we're not informed and we're out of the process, or we can swing the pendulum to the other side where we think that our salvation comes from elections, and that's not healthy either. That's, that's, that's an overreach of how we would, we would understand and view them. And so we, we, we want to make sure that we are about the gospel, that we're not spending more time telling people about candidates than we would about Jesus Christ. And so that pendulum can get swung too far. And so I, I, I want to urge us to, uh, towards either extreme to be cautious. But let us pray for our nation. Let us pray not only for Tuesday, let us not be deceived into thinking that elections bring about spiritual awakenings and revivals because they don't, but they do raise issues that help us to gauge the temperature of a nation and to see that there is only hope found in Jesus Christ. And as someone said after the end of the first service, isn't it good that God is still on his throne regardless of what happens anytime, uh, even on Tuesday? And, and he's right. He's right. God is on his throne. And because he is, I want to urge you to be a prayer warrior. Be a prayer warrior for our nation right now. We as a church have a prayer emphasis happening. And today is day three, where if you sign up, you get a text message with a prayer prompt. And I've been receiving them the last couple of days, and they remind me to stop and to pray for our nation. And that as a church family, we can pray over specific things. And so uh, uh, you can text the, the number that's on the screen there and uh, text the word pray, and you will then, then be... Uh, connected to those. All right, sermon number two.
What a, what a bonus day this has been, man. <laughs> Some are saying this wasn't a bonus, right? Okay, all right, I get that. Well, let's pick back up in our short series that we're looking at the words, the vision words that anchor our church. And we see these words every Sunday, worship, grow, and serve. And they might become so familiar to us that we might even just uh, get accustomed to, to seeing them but not really thinking deeply about them. So last week we took time to look at the word worship, to see that we as followers of Christ are first and foremost worshipers of him. And today we're going to think about the word grow and to see that there is an expectation that as Christians we grow. And I, I asked you in the fellowship news this last week to think about, excuse me, about areas in your life where you've experienced growth. Maybe in your job, uh, maybe in a hobby or, or something that you enjoy doing. You've, you've grown in skills and understanding. Maybe in your marriage, uh, what you know now versus what you knew the day you got married, that, that hopefully that's grown. Your understanding, skills of, 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 of relationships have, have been able to, to, to grow and develop through the years. Well, the same is true when it comes to our spiritual growth. In fact, in the book, What is a Healthy Church Member? by Thabiti Anyabwile, he says this, a healthy church member is a growing church member. It is impossible to separate the health of a local church from the health of its members. And it's impossible to divide the well-being of a church member from his or her spiritual growth and discipleship. The idea, he says, is that the health of a church is dependent upon the spiritual health of its members. So we ask the question, is the church healthy? As long as those in the church have a thriving and growing walk with the Lord individually. And so we, I think, collectively would say, yes, we want to be a healthy church. We want to see people coming to faith in Christ and growing in a, in a vibrant walk with him, developing as a believer. He says this in his uh, final quote from him here. He says, the most chronic problem facing churches and Christians is the lack of consistent spiritual growth and progress in discipleship. So when we see that word every week, or you see it on a video from, a, from church announcements or something where it's put before you, that word grow is speaking to each of us. It's a word of encouragement that, that we can grow, that we can understand more, that we can grow in grace. We can grow in our understanding of, of God and of the gospel. We can grow in, in, in the skills that we have to be able to serve and to lead and to reach a world that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. So let us think about growth this morning. The first point of the message is this, and I'm only giving two points today because I thought maybe uh, I'd give you a break after the introduction there. But number one, expectation. This is it. The expectation is we are to grow, and we see that throughout Scripture that we are to grow, that we're not just, just to stay the same. I was thinking about uh, the middle school Bible class that I helped with at the beginning of the, of the school year. Uh, the pastors are teaching that uh, at Living Water Academy. And I remember making some lesson plans and thinking about my students, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and trying to put together material and quizzes and tests that were appropriate for their level. And as I was putting a study guide together, I wasn't doing it as if they were first graders. But, but I also wasn't putting it together like they were juniors in high school. I was thinking about their stage, where they are at. And so we're used to seeing that in so many other contexts. What about the context of spiritual growth? The author of Hebrews said in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to what? Maturity. Paul said in Philippians 3, not that I have already reached the goal, 
where I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul knew he had not yet arrived. And you think of all that he did for the Lord and for the church, and he's still saying, I have not made it yet. He was still a work in progress. What did Peter say? 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So Peter's telling us, grow. Grow in grace. Peter says to you, grow in knowledge. And, and we look at his life, and, and what do we see in Peter's life? Where do we leave him in the, in the Gospels? What was Peter demonstrating at the time of the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus? He was demonstrating some immaturity, wasn't he? But then we see him in Acts. And we see the courage, and we see the boldness, and we see the growth. And then he pins the letters of First and Second Peter, and we see what exactly he is talking about here to grow. Grow in grace, grow in knowledge. And then we move to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And the reason I picked this passage, and we've looked at it together in the past, is that it lays out a pattern for spiritual growth to happen in the church, to see how we can even assist one another in spiritual growth. Verse 1, therefore, Paul writes, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we, we begin chapter 4 and we see this call, this admonition to live worthy of the calling. Now, now what is the calling? The calling of Christ the identity of Christ upon our lives, that we are to connect that identity with who we are and how we live. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he, he gives descriptions of humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity. What, what does that remind you of? Does it remind you of the fruit of the Spirit? Do we read about that there's this work that's happening for the believer that is growing us in Christ-likeness? That that's what we see happening here at the beginning of Ephesians 4, and that we are to make this a priority. Our lives are a response to the gospel, to the, to the, to the salvation that we have received in Christ. And if we have experienced this, this means that, that we are to grow. In fact, if you look uh, closely at this, and you see at the beginning of verse 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Some versions use the word maintain, maintain the unity of the Spirit. What, 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 when one of the commentators was writing and saying, we're not called here to create the unity of the Spirit. That's been done by Christ. But we are called with a responsibility to do what? To maintain it, to keep it. And that, again, takes effort, takes a priority to say, we are going to recognize that within the body of Christ, we don't want conflict and tension and tearing one another down. No, we want to look at building one another up and considering the needs of others and, and, and serving, loving with humility and encouragement. All these words that are used here in verse 2. Again, it's a picture of spiritual growth beginning. But that's not all. There's also not just the, the, the expectation, there's also the application there is a design that's given to us in chapter 4. Jump down to verse 11, and you'll read some verses that are probably very familiar to you. 
But if we see the fruit of the Spirit at the beginning of the chapter, now let's look at the gifts of the Spirit. And let's see how God puts a body together with different skills and giftedness that that are complementary. And you'll see that there's a word that's used over and over in these verses. It's the word grow. And we see how the pattern for growth, spiritual growth in the body, how it comes from one another. Look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for what? For the work of ministry. That's exactly what I was trying to talk about at the beginning of the message today. We have people all over this church serving in so many different capacities, doing the work of ministry. And so, yes, we have pastors and and leaders and others that are equippers, but we all, we all serve. We all work in the ministry. And it says here, to build up the body of Christ, the end of verse 12, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Isn't that great to know? That when we come to faith in Christ, we have the opportunity to grow and to mature, to learn more, to develop in Him. You could think of it this way. When we see children, we know that there are some things that are, that are childlike. And some of the, the habits of children can be rather cute at times when you see, when you see uh, their perspectives or their understanding. But if people keep those same childlike habits and immature perspectives. I can see behind those masks you're saying, no, no, we don't. We don't view that as cute. We expect that people grow. We, we want to see them mature in life. Well, the same thing here. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. This is speaking of discernment, right? Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. That's why in the other verse we read, Paul could say, I've not attained it yet. He's still growing too. We are all growing. Until we meet him face to face, we will continue to be maturing and growing into his likeness. Verse 16, from him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So, it sounds to me like we each have responsibility here to understand our body, our church family, and to see how can we help build it up. What role can we have in doing this? So as we look at Ephesians 4, again, I want us to see the outcome of the fruit of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts that are given to a church. When they are thriving, you begin to see growth happening, a flourishing, vibrant church. You see the progression. We looked at verse 12, and we saw that there is a call to an equipping ministry. And the the result is that the body is built up. There's an increase in the knowledge of God. There is discernment, as we noted, that we're, that we're not fooled by, by, by doctrine or, or teaching that is inconsistent with the Word of God. 
that we're able to look at, at what is being taught in the world around us in light of the Bible. That's part of the maturity, part of the progression. There are things that when you first came to Christ, you didn't know that the Bible said. You didn't have full, complete understanding. None of us do. But as we grow, we have greater understanding. And then we're able to become more discerning so that we're not tricked by the cunning words that are out there. And sometimes those cunning words come not just from classrooms, they come from pulpits. They come from books and they come from media. And so we have to be equipped and prepared. But then we look at verses 15 and 16 and we see that word growth used again. And we see the proper working. So I want to take just a few minutes as I wrap up the message to talk about spiritual growth, specifically five stages of spiritual growth. And I want us to do two things with that. First of all, I want us to try to identify our location today, your location, in, spirit, in terms of spiritual maturity. And then after that, I want us to each see how we can relate to others to help them move in their spiritual maturity. I'll go through it quickly. I first was introduced to this by Pastor Jim Putman. He is a pastor in Idaho, and uh, several of our staff members attended a conference a few years ago in which he was speaking about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and some practical ways that a church can structure its ministries so that members within the church can grow effectively. He was a, uh, a man who has been heavily influenced by an author by the name of Avery Willis. Maybe you've seen some of the, the books from years ago. Avery Willis and T.W. Hunt used to write, and the church was impacted. Then after that, Henry Blackaby was another, but there were, there were a number of books that were written that, that really emphasized what discipleship was all about. And Jim Putman, who in his former life was a wrestling coach and now turned pastor, uh, has put together these models that are very, very helpful. And so here's the first one. It's called The Five Stages of Spiritual Growth. You might have seen this before. And it takes the, uh, the individual and looks at it, the individual, with five different labels. And I know you might think, wow, that, that looks harsh to say that someone's dead. Well, you know, really what he's speaking of here is in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that before we come to faith in Christ, we are all spiritually dead, right? We are all sinners, uh, we, we, we all are in need of new life, new birth. And so, so we, we, we affirm the idea that, that the default setting is we're dead without Christ. We need him. And so that's where people begin. And so we understand that that is the first stage, unbelief. The second one is ignorance. Now it's defined here as an infant. Infant has a lot to learn, a lot of things that they've not yet experienced or been exposed to. And so, so if we know that there's someone that is an infant in Christ, we need to then be able to know what is our responsibility in caring for them and helping them. The next one is the child. Now again, this is not speaking of biological age. This is speaking of spiritual growth. And so someone can be a new believer in Christ at a, at a very advanced age. And, and I can hear you saying, well, just tell me, Pastor, what is that advanced age? Well, I'm not about to answer that question get myself in, in trouble. You tell me what that is. People come to faith in Christ at all ages, all seasons. And so someone could be advanced in age, but yet still be an infant as a believer. Then we, we see in stage three that the child is primarily self-centered. They think about their own needs, their own wants. 
they have a, a struggle in thinking about the needs of others, but as they grow, they become more other-centered. Or you could even see in number four, the, the young adult, that they become God-centered and concerned about the needs of other people. That's part of the spiritual maturity. And then the fifth one there is the idea that someone is a parent. They are a disciple-maker. In fact, that's, that's, really, that's really what it means when, when, we, when we say we want to not only be a disciple and a follower of Christ, but we want to make disciples as Christ commanded us in the Great Commission. And so we want to be disciple makers. And so this word parent is intentional because God has structured the human population to grow uh, through, through reproduction. The same is true within the body of Christ. We need to see ourselves reproduced. We need to see... Uh, fellow believers reproducing other disciples and followers of Christ. It's not an assessment to designate that one person in the body has greater value. It's not about value. We're all equally valuable before Christ. But it is an assessment for two reasons. One, for me to understand where I'm at, for you to understand where you're at and what, what's next for you. But it's also an understanding of how we can come along and relate to others to help them grow, because that's what Ephesians 4 is all about. Well, let's, let's think about this. Now, you may, may uh, uh, have heard the idea that each one of us is a work in progress. We all are. We've not all got it figured out. None of us are perfect. None of us are complete. Uh, we may be positionally complete in Christ, but when it comes to the working out of our, of our spiritual growth, we all have room to grow and to learn. Reminds me of uh, some Michelangelo statues that I saw pictures of years ago. Michelangelo has these statues that are called the captives that he never finished. And there's at least four of them. And you can see that there's arms and legs and, and maybe even uh, shoulders that are coming, but yet they're not there. And, 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 and they never will be, right? Because he didn't finish the work. Well, we, each of us are something like that. There's, there's work that God is doing among us. In fact, there was an author by the name of Theodore Roeder who said when he looked at these partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed, an ache to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisons and inhibits my wholeness. But as with those statues, I cannot liberate myself. From that, I need the hand of another. Do you think that God's hand is at work in your life? to shape you and to mold you, to help you develop? Well, oftentimes the way he does this is by using other people, other believers to come in, to guide, to teach, to encourage, to equip, to build up. And so today you may find yourself longing for someone else to walk with you, to disciple you, to mentor you. Or today you may come and also look at that and say, there's some people in my life where I need to be more responsible to them. I need to, I need to help them more. In fact, when you look at the five stages of discipleship, let's look at the discipleship wheel. I know many of you have seen this before. If you look at the wheel, you'll see the same five categories, dead, infant, child, young adult, parent. And as you look at that, I want you to, to, to think of where you are, but also moms and dads, grandparents. Think about where your kids and grandkids are. Where are they? You are the primary disciplers of your home. And so the responsibility of saying, well, where can I meet up with them and help them to continue their growth so that, so that they 
don't experience stagnation because I'm not there for them. So we look at this wheel, and number one, we can identify where we're at, but there's another component. Let's lay the next one out. In the next slide there, if you, I'll give you a minute to orient yourself. The center section is what we just looked at, the five stages. But the outer band is our responsibility towards that person. Let me give an example. If someone is dead in Christ, our responsibility is to, you see the, the, the piece of pie there? Share the gospel. We're to share the gospel with them. No, we're not to, we're not to, to release them as a disciple maker. That doesn't make sense, does it? We, do, we, we, we share the gospel. We see them come to faith. New life, born again. Now, let me stop. There may be some people here today who have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ. There may be some watching online and you say, I, I'm, I'm dead spiritually. Well, the good news is you don't have to stay that way. Christ came. He came to give life. As it says in John 10, abundant life. And so today may be an invitation for you to find Christ, to experience what it means to be born again. But then as we, as we work through and we see that, that we still have responsibility with the, with, the, uh, with the infant believer, we say that we are to share with them because they're ignorant of things. We need to share truth. We need to share habits, spiritual disciplines. We need to share our lives so that they can learn from an example of what it means to follow and place faith in Christ Day by day by day. Well, then once someone moves into the time of being a, 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 a young believer but not a new believer, there's still more that needs to happen. We need to connect them, help connect them to the Lord, connect them to a church family, maybe even a small group. We need to connect them to purpose because their whole life has changed. What used to be primary importance to them has is, is, is been changed. Values have changed perspective and goals, they, they change under the Lordship of Christ. And so to be able to help guide someone. But then as they become more of a young adult in the faith, if you will, we then begin to see their focus is not as much on themselves as it is upon others. And that's where we see that they are being called and trained to minister. This Ephesians 4 model to, to, to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, but to also find, discover, and utilize spiritual gifts to serve the body. And so, so people need to have ministry opportunities, but before they're placed into a ministry setting, they should have equipping and training. And that's, that's what this, this whole section is about. And then give an opportunity to serve. And so as you move around this circle, when you go from connect to train to minister, that's where the focus of the believer begins to be very outward, thinking about serving the needs of others. Well, then you go into that last quadrant, that of the, the parent, and that's the one where we see the disciple now being a disciple maker, and they, they are walking with others through this discipleship process. And I, I hope that many of you can look at this, at this chart and you can remember people that God put into your life to help you grow and to walk in Him. But I hope that it doesn't just stop with you remembering who helped you. Think about who God is wanting you to help. That you have a calling, a high calling to walk with someone else younger in the faith. To help them understand and to grow that you can encourage them. That's what we see happening in Ephesians 4. So as we wrap this up, let me just give one more quote from Thabiti. He says, Ephesians 4 offers a pretty strong argument. 
that participation in the body of Christ is the main way in which Christ strengthens and matures us. When we serve others in the church, bear with one another, love one another, correct one another, encourage one another, we participate in a kind of spiritual maturity co-op where our stores and supplies are multiplied. The end result is growth and discipleship. So I don't know about you, but I, I am energized by the understanding of growth because none of us want to have a stagnant walk with God. None of us want to have a half-hearted, half-baked experience as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to thrive. We want to grow. We want to learn. And we want to see that happen in the lives of others. So I pray that you will consider this understanding of spiritual growth, that you will, that you will make that a priority if you haven't before now. But I also know that words of vision need practical strategy. And I know that Stephanie mentioned that earlier in the year we were working on, on strategy for 2020. And who could have ever predicted what was in store for 2020, right? But we still have these anchors to our vision that we don't want to let go of. And when we think about, about strategy related to spiritual growth, let me just mention one of the, the, the tools that God has given us as a church family, a small group ministry. There are things that can happen in a group of 12 to 20 that can't happen in a group this size. Ways of really being able to get to know one another and to understand where each other are on that stage uh, uh, and thinking about a stage of discipleship. When you can know where someone else is at and see how you can encourage them and stimulate their growth in the Lord. And so, so I want to again, emphasize the need for small groups. Now, I know that right now in COVID, it makes it difficult. We've got capacity sizes, and we've got these masks and social distancing and all of that. But nonetheless, we are still making an effort. In fact, one of our small groups is doing Zoom meetings as many times as three times a week just to try to connect with as many people in the small group as possible. Now, that is effort. That is, that is a small group leader that says, I understand how vital it is that I not lose connection with my group. They, they need encouragement right now. And they're putting forth a lot of effort to do that. So I, I, I want to hold up our small groups and invite you to think of, of participating in one. But I also want to t touch briefly on the types of models that we can have as a small group. If you look at the current model, you see these rectangles across the top of the screen. You can see that, that oftentimes we, we see groups that come together and stay together, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. And the groups don't change much. They stay together. And then every now and then we, we get a group of people together and say, let's start a new small group. And that's where the, the gold ones on the end are. And that's, that's a model that we've, that we've used. And it has, it has some benefits to it. But there's also some challenges to it. And that is that the, that the small groups tend to not reproduce themselves. Whereas the model on the bottom says it's in our DNA that, that, that success and growth of a small group will mean that we will reproduce another one. That there will be other leaders that are identified, that are trained, and then they are released to serve. It's the understanding that, that when we are in a new group, 
in a new location, and we look around and we see that we have room for people to come, we begin thinking not of recruiting other people from the church to attend our small group, but other people from the community to attend our small group so that they can experience themselves gospel life with other believers, that that might be the first step, the entry step for them to take in being introduced to Jesus Christ. And so that's a model where I would encourage some of our groups to think, it's a victory for you to birth a second generation group. And then watch and see. Maybe that group of a dozen will get to two dozen. And they may look around and say, we need to do it again. And we've seen that happen. I could name some groups that have birthed other groups. But then to see it go to third generation, wouldn't that be awesome? That's the multiplication. That's disciples making disciples. And so I want to put that out there. I know we're in COVID, and I know there's so many restrictions, but it might make sense to have smaller, small groups now because of COVID. It may give us an opportunity to expand our thinking and our mission during this time. Well, as we wrap up, let me just say those words again. Worship, grow, and serve. They are more than just words on a screen. They're part of our church vision. They are part of our identity as church members, but also as followers of Christ. So I ask you today to take that word grow and ask the Lord to to help you see where you are, but also to see where he wants to use you for the benefit and blessing of others. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ephesians 4 for the way that it has instructed us and encouraged us towards a vibrant walk with you. Lord, may you help us to be a church where we see people coming to faith in Christ, where we see people intentionally growing and being being released as not only disciples, but disciple makers into our community. God, may you bless our small group ministry. May you you bless those who are mentoring and encouraging others. Father, may you be the one that brings the growth. Help us to respond to you. Help us to align our lives, our ways, our priorities under your direction. And we recognize, Lord, that none of us, none of us can do this on our own. We're dependent upon your spirit. So we pray that it would be at work now. We pray this in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen.